Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. I absolutely love Babbel because their courses help me learn real-life conversational skills. It's so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, speak to the locals without having to consult language apps. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time offer for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners, at babbel.com SPP. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Smart People Podcast, another episode with Chris and John. Fill in the blank. And this is John. There you go. There's him. That's him. What's up, everybody? Thanks for joining us. Great show again. They're always great shows. This is 88 great shows. I was awesome on this show. You you sucked. You were 10. It was like you weren't even there. You're right. I wasn't. John wasn't there. He had to go coach baseball. He had to do his civic duty. That's right. My volunteer work. So rarely we have this where only one of us does the show, but we had to interview this guest. He's got a fully booked week or month, and this was the only time we could we could get him in there. So, but before we get into that, John, I want to ask you a question. Shoot, what is the worst song of 2012? Also dubbed perhaps the worst song of all time. I mean, if you tell me that it's like Justin Bieber or Psy. No, no. Like literally the worst song. The worst year. song? It better not be Rebecca Black. Rebecca Black. Come on. Rebecca Black Friday. I love okay. that song. Now let's talk about commercials you remember. How about great ad campaigns of last year, both virally on the internet and on TV? Uh, Old Spice. Old Spice. We didn't even plan this. So anyways, those are two off the top of your head that... Uh, this week's guest talks about, and the thing to remember is 
the reason these things are memorable is because of word of mouth sharing. It is people telling people. It's not so much all the time, you know, social media, which as we talk about this this on this episode is only 7% of word of mouth sharing. Oh, I like to think that my posting of Rebecca Black every Friday yeah. for like two months so wait, that had up, a lot to do with how popular that song that was. That brings up a good point. He talks about the fact the reason that song was popular, it would spike one day oh, yeah, out Fridays. of a week. Every Friday. Yeah, everybody posted that song on Friday and they're like, oh, this is funny. Exactly. I was one of those people. So this week we talked to Jonah Berger. And John, you want to tell him a little bit more about Jonah? He's kind of a big deal. He's the assistant professor of marketing at Wharton, which is at University of Pennsylvania. He's had his articles and research published in places like the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, Science, Harvard Business Review, Wired, Business Week, goes on and on and on, all over the place. And you know what? We say this a lot, and you guys probably know, but you can tell when a guest just knows their stuff, cold, down, pat. And he does it. He doesn't miss a beat. The sound quality is awesome. His responses are awesome. There's stories in here. This is a really cool episode. But anyways, getting back to what we were talking about is he says that these things catch on for various reasons. There's six different reasons, and he'll talk about them. But Friday being a perfect example, because every Friday there's a reason for people to remember it. That's just one of the six we talk about, and we get into a lot more stuff. We're about to turn it over to Jonah John, what else we got for him? I want to think of a song that we could, like Thursday, where we're like, hey, it's Thursday. Time to donate to Smart People <laughs> Podcast. Yeah. Guys, really make sure you, you send us some donations. You know, we have gotten a couple this past week and very, very thankful. I mean, it's the way that uh, we're sustaining now. And we're really trying to do some cool things. And if you guys think the episodes are worth it, which this one definitely will be, throw us a couple bucks. Go to smartpeoplepodcast.com slash drink. Yeah, Chris, as you mentioned, we've had a few donations and we're actually going to call them out. Joanna, Adam, Amanda, Paul. Thank you guys very, very much. You help keep our lights on. Keep doing it. Keep it up. And as I said, it's smartpeoplepodcast.com slash drink. The reason is because think about it as buying us a drink. And uh, you go to the bar, you buy a Bud Light, depending on where you are. It could be six bucks, it could be two, but that's all we're asking for. Buy us a Bud Light. So anyways, hope you enjoy the episode. We want to keep cranking these out. We already have next week's guests lined up. Going to be awesome. Here's Jonah. So the first thing, really, I have to ask you, because when everyone thinks of your title, Contagious, and why things catch on, everyone always wants to jump to social media. And I know that you clearly state that this is not all about social media. It's actually very minimally about social media. And I was hoping you could explain why that is for those that always make that assumption. It's a great question, and I think uh, you know marketers are always looking for the shiniest new toy. Uh, you know, a couple years ago, Foursquare was supposed to be really big. Now, Pinterest is big. Who knows which of these technologies will persist? But I think research has nicely shown that most word of mouth is not online. Uh, most word of mouth is offline. Only about seven percent ends up being online. If you think about why, though, I think there's two key reasons. Uh, one is that the online stuff gets a lot more attention in the press. So there are lots of articles about new social media technologies, the newest social networks. 
what's going on with these spaces. And so that gets a lot of attention in the press, which makes companies think that most word of mouth is there. The second reason is, is a little more psychological, and that is that there's a written record of what we share online. So if you go back, just you as a person, and you say, well, what did I talk about today? You can look at your social media feed and say, wow, I talked about this and this other thing, and I heard about this brand where there's no really written record, there's no even audio record of what we talk about face to face. But that doesn't mean it doesn't matter. It just means that it's sometimes harder to track and harder to see. And so some great companies, you know, the Keller Fay Group, uh, as well as some others have collected some really nice data on offline word of mouth by using diaries and other sorts of things. And, and we really do share a lot offline. Um, I asked students in my class actually to keep a diary over the course of the day to see how much offline they share. And people are amazed at how many times more offline matters than, than online. You know, I love that thing about the diary because I always think I, I'm not a, it's funny. I work in kind of advertising, marketing sales, yet I'm not a big believer in it. I feel like, oh, I'm not manipulated by this. It doesn't affect my decisions. And I really, truly believe that. I know it's a ridiculous assumption, but could you kind of talk about how people, I think a lot of people feel that way, but clearly it's not the case or else companies wouldn't be spending millions of dollars on billions on trying to figure out how we share things. Definitely. I mean, I think we all have this this feeling that we're alone in a, in a crowd of sheep. Other people are susceptible to social <laughs> influence. You know, oh, look at all those people driving the similar cars and they're dressed the same and they listen to the same music, but not me. You know, I'm a rugged individual. I'm a special, unique snowflake. There's no <laughs> one else out there like me. Um, and we've done research on this phenomenon. Indeed, if you ask people, you know, how much, and we've gone up to BMW drivers, for example, and, and we ask them, well, how much does a friend of yours who drive a BMW, how much was their car choice influenced by what other people are driving? And they'll say, oh, they were influenced a lot. And then we'll ask them, well, how much were you influenced? Oh, me? Well, not at all, right? And, and even when it's buying the same thing, we think that others are susceptible conformity, but, but not us. Mm. Um, and it's an interesting phenomenon. Even in cases where conformity is not bad, we still don't think we do. It, um, but that doesn't mean we don't. Uh, and so I think we're all susceptible to these hidden influences on our behavior, even though we're not aware of them. It, it doesn't mean they don't matter. When you mention, you know, the car thing, I feel like a lot of the large purchases are oftentimes it's easy to kind of say, yeah, I mean, I bought an Infinity when I graduated, and I was I did it probably because most of my friends were buying sports cars. But what about the smaller items? I mean, do we really? Uh, are we affected by word of mouth, by media advertising on everything we buy? Or is it really much, you know, these much larger things where we actually are constantly inundated by their advertisements? Research has looked at a whole bunch of different categories, uh, and across domains, word of mouth has a huge influence on, on our behavior. Um, and, and subtle environmental influences have a, a huge influence on our behavior. Uh, we did a study a few years ago, for example, looking at voting behavior. And you might say, well, okay, people vote in different locations. Some people vote in, I don't know, churches. Other people vote in schools. But there's no way that where you vote would affect how you vote, right? I mean, voting is a big, important decision. Your, your mind should already be made up. There's no way that it would affect your behavior there. And we found even on that measure, you know, where people voted, voting in a school actually made people significantly more likely 
to support a school funding initiative. Mm. Uh, and, and it matters for small things also. Research shows that playing French music in the grocery store leads people to be more likely to buy French wine. German music leads people to be more likely to buy German wine. And so these factors influence our behavior, whether it's expensive things or cheap things, uh, whether it's hedonic products or more utilitarian products, uh, even in the domains we would least expect it, others' behavior is, as well as advertising really affects what we do. Okay. That, I have a bunch of questions off of that now because, <laughs> well, one of them is this. It's this thing that research shows blank. All I read is nonfiction. We've talked to tons of authors on the show and all of them super smart. And I've read your book. I've listened to you talk. You know your stuff. And so I really do trust a lot of the things you say. One of the things I wonder is when you say research shows, and obviously you're a researcher, but does that mean, look, this is most likely, very likely, almost definitely true? Because I just feel like no way if I listen to French music, I'm going to buy French wine. I don't want to believe my mind is that easily manipulated. So I think there's an important way to think about this. Does it mean that playing French music is going to make everyone buy French wine? No. And if you never buy wine, it doesn't matter what music the grocery store plays. You're not suddenly going to get up and buy French wine. Sure. Um, but that said, you know, the way to think about it is imagine yourself as sort of a scale, right? So take the voter example. Uh, there was a sales tax initiative, raise uh, the sales tax from five to about 6% in Arizona. That's what we looked at when we looked at voting. And if on the one hand, nobody likes their taxes to be higher, right? So that's what we don't, we don't want to support that initiative. But on the other side is, well, we care about schools. We care about kids. And so you're a little bit caught in the balance. And so these environmental factors can shift us when we're on the margin. Uh, there's that famous example uh, that happened in New Jersey uh, where someone said, hey, I flashed drink Coke on the screen of a, of a movie theater and suddenly everyone got up and, and bought Coke. Uh, and that was false. That didn't actually happen. You know, they, they didn't subliminally affect people's behavior. Um, yet in some ways that could work, you know? So if, if you sometimes buy Coke and sometimes you buy Sprite and you're already on your way to the concession stand, then flashing drink Coke on the screen should make you on the margin to be more likely to buy Coke. But if you never buy soda, it's not going to make you get up out of your seat like a mindless automaton and robot and walk down the aisle and suddenly, you know, buy six or seven sodas. And so I think the way to think about this is on the margin, these subtle factors shift our behavior, but they don't make us do things we would never do otherwise. Sure. And that makes sense. And oftentimes I am buying wine, so who knows? And I do, I mean, I guess I do, especially when it comes to word of mouth, you know, and we can transition into that. I don't think many people will disagree that word of mouth is the strongest motivator to purchase something. It's the, the thing that people rely on the most. And I don't think that's changed much over, I'm sure, millennia. With that in mind, should advertising be more targeted at creating word of mouth versus creating action? So say I'm putting together an ad campaign or I have a small business or anything. Should I be thinking, how do I make this more easily shareable, memorable and all that? Or should I be thinking, I want the person who sees this to buy my product? The end goal there is the same, right? So the end goal of, of word of mouth is to get people to, you know, uh, adopt your service or buy your product or support your nonprofit. So um, it may seem like there's a different step in the middle, you know, rather than trying to directly get them to purchase, get them to talk and, and then get them to purchase. But at the end of the day, the, the goal is the same. I think that advertising isn't terrible. Uh, if your goal is to get broad awareness, then advertising is a great way to do it really quickly. If you have a couple million dollars sitting in the bank, well, a Super Bowl 
that is a fantastic way to let millions of people know about your product right away. Um, will that make them go buy it? Probably not, right? Television ads in particular, but ads in general, they're not very persuasive. They, they do make us aware of products, but word of mouth is much more effective in persuading us to actually buy those products. And so there is a trade-off. You know, advertising increases awareness. Word of mouth also increases awareness. Word of mouth is slower, but word of mouth is more persuasive. And so both are important in, in the marketing mix. It really depends on your goals. Uh, but I think particularly for small businesses, over-investing in advertising is, is the wrong way to think about things. I think the goal as a small business should really be to turn your existing customers into advocates. That doesn't cost money. You don't have to advertise. You just have to figure out how to get them to spread the word. No, that's perfect. And it's funny you mention it because I do the marketing for a nonprofit. So we're kind of trying to figure that out now. <laughs> and that's really useful. And it, it makes a lot of sense. And that's a perfect segue into let's talk about word of mouth marketing in general. I mean, you have done tons of research and you cover it in, in your book, Contagious. What are the keys to it? If, if somebody is putting together this, say we're trying to turn customers into advocates, what do we do? How do we do that? I know that's a broad question. but <laughs> It's a very broad question, but it's a very important one. Uh, we found in our research that word of mouth is not random and it's not luck and it's not chance. There's a science behind it, uh, looking both at online and offline word of mouth, uh, looking at B2C as well as B2B. Uh, we found that there are six key principles that repeatedly drive people to talk and share. Uh, we put them in a framework to help people remember it. It's the steps framework. Uh, we talk about social currency, triggers, emotion, public practical value and stories. And you can think about it almost like a, like a recipe or a formula for driving word of mouth. You don't necessarily need to follow all the ingredients to get it to work for you, but the more of those factors you bake into your message or you build into your product, the more effective you're going to be. And indeed, we've used the framework for many companies to help them both get more word of mouth as, as well as get more sales overall. Okay. So you've seen this in action. Yes. Now, that has to be a very daunting task. When you go into a company and they say, hey, here's what we do, uh, I'm sure they say, the CEO or whatever marketing director says, hey, make this go viral, <laughs> right? Yes. I mean, it's like this word, oh, no problem. That's got to be daunting. How's the process go? Do you break it down? Do you? Is there one key step, one word you need to focus in on? Everybody has their little tips. I think viral is actually the wrong goal because when people think about viral, they think about 10 million views, 15 million views. And sure enough, you know, if I can get a company 10 million views, they'll be really happy with me. But 10 million views really isn't their goal. What most companies want is 10 to 20% more customers. They don't need a billion views. They don't need every person in the world to know about their service. You know, for most small businesses especially, you just want more customers. You don't need double as many customers. Sure, that would be great, but you don't need everyone in the world to hear about your message. And so for, for most small businesses, it's really about understanding these things and, again, getting those customers to, to talk more. Whether we need the video to be viral, that's not so important. We need those existing customers to tell one or two more people. It's, it's almost a little bit like a batting average in, in baseball. Um, can I guarantee with any hitter that you can hit a home run every single time? No way. You know, No one hits a home run every time they're at bat. But good hitters who understand the science of hitting have a higher average. They hit home runs more often, and they also hit more singles, more doubles, and more triples. And so that's the goal here. By, by understanding the science behind word of mouth – 
You get people to tell two friends instead of just one. You get them to spread the word to five people over email rather than just two. And along the way, you grow your business and you you help your idea catch on. I think that's a fantastic point, especially because I've never, I can't say I've never understood, but the virality, right? Trying to put a video up and it be viral and everybody view it. Did that come about because people just wanted to be seen or heard? Or do you think it came about because people were like, hey, I can make money off ads or... I still don't understand the big deal. If I put a YouTube video up and it got seen a million times, now like a hundred million, I get it, but a million times, is that going to change my world? Maybe I'm just being naive. (laughs) I don't know. I, I think, I mean, so, and when I say viral, I, I mean, we don't need to think about the big viral that people always want to think about. But yeah, I mean, if you can get a million views, if you can get 100,000 views, if you can get even 50,000 views, that's great. And if you can get more views by understanding the science of sharing than you would have gotten otherwise, that's even better. Um, the benefit of these of these initiatives, they're not very expensive. You know, when, when you put a video up of, of you and your house doing something online and you can get uh, even 10,000 people to go check it out, it's a really cost-effective way to get your message out there. Mm. But again, given that much of word of mouth is actually offline, I think that focusing only on online and focusing on viral videos is not necessarily the way to go. These tools are important and these tools can help you make a viral video, but they can also help you get people to talk about, I don't know, you know, your your accounting service or you're your a law firm or you're a corner coffee shop. You're a nonprofit and you want people to donate more money. Uh, you want them to recycle more. You want them to remember, uh, you know, not to eat certain fatty foods. The same ideas apply. It just depends on what type of initiative you're you're getting to catch on. In your research, have you found that this all stems back to the fact that we are humans, we like community, we like to be involved with each other, and we like to seem knowledgeable so others reach out to us? Is it really that human connection that you found is the driving force behind all of the principles you you named earlier? So the the human connection drives us to share. When we love connecting with others, whether it's uh, passing on information or talking about our day. It 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 what is what makes us human? The the, the ability to share language. That said, that doesn't say why we share some things rather than others. It says why we talk but not what we talk about. And so these principles really help us understand why we talk about some things rather than others. So you talked about looking good, for example. That's what social currency is all about. Mm. The idea that we talk about and share things that make us look smart and in the know rather than out of it and behind the times. Uh, You know, a few months ago, LinkedIn sent out this email to some of their members saying, hey, your profile is one of the top 1% or 5% of all profiles. Thousands of people shared that email with others. Why? Because it made them look really smart. To be one of those special people that has a profile that's highly viewed makes you look really good. And so you want to look good and you tell others to make you look that way. Um, lots of other examples of social currency, but that's one of the, the six drivers that shape what we share. Could you give us a few examples of campaigns or advertisements that we may have seen or may not have seen. And I guess I'm kind of more interested in ones that took either a unique approach or, you know, I'm not as impressed by, say, Apple doing something that goes viral because they're huge and what they have billions of dollars to spend on it. But, <laughs> you know, say somebody who kind of came up with something interesting and you were like, wow, that did the job and it probably did it cheaply. Kudos to them. 
There are a number of great examples. Uh, one of my favorite in the, the nonprofit space is a group called Movember. Uh, so they wanted to raise money for men's cancers. Uh, but if you think about it, the problem with many nonprofits, particularly with donations, is that it's very hard to know what someone else is donating to. So if you look around your office or you think about your friends, unless they have a T-shirt or something, you don't really know what causes they support. But because you don't know what they support, it's going to be hard for their behavior to affect yours. And so what's so great about Movember is it takes this private act of donation and it makes it much more public. And public is one of the, the six factors I talk about in the book. And Movember's great, right? It's uh, essentially rather than running a 5K, uh, you get people to sponsor you growing a mustache. For the month of November, you grow a big bushy mustache and other people uh, support you along the way. What's great about that, though, is if you walk into the office sporting a mustache and you don't usually, someone is going to ask you, wait a second, what's up with that mustache? And you're going to tell them, well, I'm doing Movember. And then suddenly you spread the word about this cause because they figured out a public signal for that otherwise private action. And so it's, it's not just brands. The same ideas apply to nonprofits, and it doesn't necessarily take a huge advertising budget. It's about understanding that science of social transmission. I love Movember, by the way. It's just, it's, just, it's a great excuse to grow a mustache. Oh, it is. And I know in your book, you talk about something really interesting that I loved about how the anti-drug campaign, the commercials, they might have increased drug use. And I think this is a, a great story to kind of let people know the things you cover in your book and how interesting and pertinent it is. This is one of the most surprising findings, I think, uh, from the book. So, you know, decades ago, uh, it started with the Just Say No campaign, public service announcements about not using drugs. Uh, and the, the idea behind them was really simple. We don't want people to use drugs. Uh, so we're going to hey, let them know that sometimes people are going to ask you, do you want to use drugs? And you got to be ready to say no. Um, and you'd expect that these ads would decrease drug use. They'd teach you, hey, you know, listen, young kid, say no when someone else asks you to use them. But when some researchers actually looked at the data, what they found is that in some cases, anti-drug ads might have actually increased drug use. And when they looked at it more closely, the reason was very subtle. What they realized is many of these ads go something along the lines of the following. Imagine you're a child, you're sitting at home, you're watching television, and you never really thought about doing drugs before. And then suddenly an ad comes on the screen uh -huh. that says, hey, some kids at school are going to ask you to try drugs. And uh, they might even be the cool kids. But when these folks ask you to try drugs, you should say no. And you're sitting there as a kid going, well, hold on. I had no idea this drug thing existed. And wow, the cool kids in school are doing it? Who would have thought? <laughs> well, if the cool kids are doing it, if a bunch of people are doing it, maybe I should get into this drug thing too. And so while the ad is simultaneously saying, hey, don't do this, it's also saying lots of other people are doing it. And when lots of other people are doing something, people are much more likely to do it themselves. Think about when you're uh, in, in an area of town you're not familiar with and you're looking for a restaurant to eat at. Use the signal, well, if the restaurant's full, it must be good. We look to others for information. As long as their behavior is public, we're much more likely to imitate it. That's terrifying for a number of reasons. <laughs> and the main one being, how do we avoid that blunder? I'm sure, I mean, nobody could have seen that coming. So hindsight's twenty twenty. but do you have any ideas or do you, have you learned from, I guess we talked about what we should do. Have you learned from all your research, definitely don't do this? Well, I think whenever you're communicating social information, 
uh, statistics or facts about how people are behaving, you have to be very careful. Uh, you know, the record, Recording Industry of America sends out these notices, you know, hey, 60% of people are illegally downloading music, don't illegally downloading music. And you sit there and go, wow, 60% of people doing this? I had no idea. I should probably be downloading music as well. As soon as you tell some number about what other people are doing, people are going to be more likely to go along with it. So be careful. If you want people to do something, well, then talk about how many or the percentage of people that are doing that thing. If you don't want people to do something, then definitely don't give them any sense that other people are doing it. They've applied this for anti-drinking messages in college. Um, so uh, you know, rather than saying, hey, X percent of your peers are binge drinking, they focus on the downsides of binge drinking, or they mention how many people have less than a certain number of drinks, pointing out the social information to put point people away from engaging in that behavior. That's a great point. No, that and that really makes sense. And I guess it's a perfect time to tell the world that we're about to hit a million downloads. So obviously people like listening to this podcast. Congratulations. <laughs> Think about it. A million people have listened to your show. I know. It's if you're out there and you're mind. listening, you should be telling your friends this is the best thing ever. <laughs> no, it, it blows my mind. And you know, it's these things and you're right. I mean, after talking to you and just going, oh, people do share this stuff. I do. If I watch a hilarious video or movie or something, I share it, but I don't think of it as I'm marketing on behalf of somebody. It's it's actually subconscious, the sharing that I do. Definitely. And, and this is, the, I, I talk about this in the stories chapter of the book. Nobody wants to be a marketer. Nobody really wants to help uh, by selling stuff for, for other people. You know, if you're marketing your own stuff, great, but no one wants to market other people's stuff. No one wants to shill for, uh, you know, I don't know, a uh, software company or, uh, you know, even Apple products, let's say. Um, but people are very happy to tell stories, stories about how the product helped them out, how it made their life better, uh, stories about how neat something was. Uh, another great example uh, that I talk about in the book is this idea of, of uh, will it blend, you know, chucking stuff in the blender and watching the blender tear it to shreds. These videos have gotten millions of views, but what's really cool about them, no one's sharing that video because they want people to buy the blender. They're just sharing it because it's really engaging content. But that content is also a Trojan horse story. It has an exterior shell. It's really engaging, really surprising, really remarkable. But the brand comes along for the ride. You can't watch a Will It Blend video and not realize, wow, they make really powerful blenders, mm. which is the exact message they want you to get across. And so what smart word of mouth marketing, it, it's not about getting people, uh, you know, paying them to talk about products or, you know, forcing them to talk about something. It's about getting them to share stories that make them look good, that have useful information, that evoke high arousal emotions, but stories that are also Trojan horses that carry that brand or that benefit along for the ride. It's just a great example. I like the visual of the Trojan horse, too. I mean, it just makes you realize that I'm trying to make a, mind, a mental note of all these things so I can use them in my marketing going forward. And I hope oh, everybody oh, else is, too. Yeah, definitely. And by the way, if your listeners are interested, um, we have a free workbook uh, on my website. It's just Jonah, J-O-N-A-H, Berger, B-E-R-G-E-R.com to help people apply these different things. So it's sort of a companion in the book and it'll help you think about how to apply these ideas to your own business. Oh, that's perfect. I'm going to be going through that tonight, literally. Now, the last thing I wanted to ask you, and sometimes I ask this, and usually only if I'm really, I am interested how did you come to study this, become an expert? I mean, did you always like marketing or did you like understanding how people act or why they share? There's got to be a path. 
I actually I, I grew up studying hard sciences, so math, science, computer science. Uh, in high school, I did a research project as a capstone on urban hydrology, uh, which is the least marketing topic you can probably <laughs> think of. It's it's how uh, the the stream, uh, the geometry of the stream was affected by well, the buildings that are in the watershed area. So I, I love that stuff. I went to college, but I started becoming interested in well, could we apply these same hard science tools? to social things, uh, to the social sciences, uh, you know, to the people puzzles that we see all around us in our everyday lives. I think sometimes we've all wondered, well, why did I buy that thing? Or why did I tell someone else about this? Or why is this product or this idea or this service so popular? And I started to wonder, well, couldn't we apply these same hard science tools to answer these questions? And, and that's really what I've spent the last decade trying to do, you know, understand why things go viral, understand how word of mouth works, understand the science behind trends. There's definitely a lot more to be learned, but we've started to chip away at these interesting problems by using uh, the, the tools that all scientists love. And actually, the, I, just one quick follow on because it made me think of it. Why do we buy stuff and all that? Do you have one of the key principles that you think is more important than the other? Just wondering. <laughs> People often ask that, you know, is there is there one uh, magic bullet? Um, and uh, unfortunately, they're not. I mean, it, it depends on the situation. Uh, for offline word of mouth, for example, triggers are really important. Uh, for online, social currency becomes a little more important. If you've got a physical product, it's easier to make it public. So, you know, we actually made the cover of the book orange because we wanted it to be easier for people to see when someone else was reading it. Mm. Um, so we, we applied the same principles to, to marketing the book. But no, you know, there's not there's not one key thing. I think the key thing to remember, though, is it not luck and it's not chance. There, there is a science behind it. It takes a little bit of work to understand it. But once you do, you can make your marketing much more effective. And I guess lastly, you have to still have a good product or else nobody will want to talk about it. Right. Or, or they'll tell other people how bad it is. Oh, that's <laughs> and, true. And, and that I think, you know, is, is the biggest mistake. Sometimes people say, oh man, you know, uh, I've got all this negative word of mouth. Everyone hates my product. You know, I got to get some positive word of mouth. The first thing you have to do is fix the problem, <laughs> right? If, if your product's not working, go out there, figure out what's wrong with it and make it better. Um, and then worry about the word of mouth on top of it. That's a great point. Well, Jonah, thank you so much for being on the show. I know you mentioned your website, jonaburger.com. I also wanted to see if there's anywhere else that people could find you. I mean, that free workbook, as you mentioned, is going to be great. Um, your book, Contagious, Why Things Catch On, you can Google that or Amazon it and, and all that. Is there anywhere else? Are you active on Twitter or you know places we can find you? Yeah, so I'm on Twitter at uh, j1burger. Um, so just at J1 Burger. Uh, and I've also recently, I'm um, doing some posts for LinkedIn's influencer program. So I wrote a couple pieces just in the past few weeks on word of mouth and viral, and I'll be continuing to, to blog a bit from there. Those LinkedIn articles are fantastic. I've gotten oh, sucked you. into them. I mean, it's crazy. <laughs> Well, thank thank you so much. And congratulations, by the way, on a million views. That's great. Great news. Thank you so much. Yeah, actually, your episode might be the one that pushes us over that. So I'll be sure to let you know. That's fantastic. All right, Joan. Well, have a great night. And uh, thanks again. Thanks for having me. All righty. Bye-bye. Welcome back, guys. Hope you enjoyed that interview. Sorry I had to miss it. I missed you guys. I yeah, did. You know you would have loved it, too. I would have loved it. But you would have tried to take it down some weird tech crunch oh you mean some hole. awesome for the fact that he wrote for wired and 
It happens to be one of my favorite magazines slash websites. Yeah, I know you didn't catch it, but he's writing for LinkedIn too. He talks about it on the uh, on the. What's LinkedIn? Yeah, exactly. Anyways, guys, Jokes. thanks so much. Hope you enjoyed it. Again, that was that was a cool episode. I personally love it just because I'm involved in the marketing aspect and really need to learn how to move people a little bit. Don't forget to head on over to iTunes, subscribe, leave us a rating. Those are the kind of things, you know, a little donation. Just just show us some love as we provide these 30 to 40 minutes for you once a week and expand your brain. Before we go, I actually have a favor to ask. If you like the show, you like this episode, you like past episodes, tell one friend. Say, hey, Check out this podcast. I think you'll like it. Just one. If you learned anything from this week, it'd be that. Just tell a friend. See you guys next week.